All right, this morning we're in uh, Jeremiah 29. If you haven't uh, touched your Bible since last Sunday, but you marked the passage last Sunday, just turn a little bit to the right. We were in Isaiah last week, super handy for you. Let's turn a little bit to the right. Over the last few weeks, we've been making our way through our identity series, Grow, Serve, and Go. Simply stated, Ridgecrest is in the business of raising up Christ followers who are growing in their faith, serving in their giftedness, and going forth boldly to proclaim the gospel in each and every place God would carry them. Grow, serve, and go. Super simple. And so over the last couple of weeks specifically, we've been focused in on the idea, and, and for the month of October, it's our missions month, and so we've been focused in on the idea of what it is to go forward with the gospel. Now this year, we're specifically looking at local ministry. So what it's like to do these things here in Greenville, Texas, here in Hunt County, okay? Because that's why we've been having these groups come forward and, and, and give you information about how, what it would look like for you to work with hands or with fish or with Rafa or our own benevolence team. And so as we, as we go through this, the scriptures we've been looking at, if you've not been here, let me just, let me just bring it back to your mind. We started in Genesis eleven twenty seven through 12, 9. In Genesis eleven twenty seven through 12, 9, we see in that passage God's heart. We see God's heart. His heart is for the nations. God's desire is for men and women to come to know him. And he's set this thing up. He came into Abram, a nobody from nowhere, and blessed him, raised him up. And in verse 3, he said, I will bless you, and I'll cause all the families of the earth to be blessed in you. So he sent Abram out from Ur of the Chaldeans to the world. And he's been doing that ever since. And then last week, we had this really painful look at our own hearts. We're so given to, to rule following. We're so given to, man, if I could just do the right thing, and if I could just do the right thing for long enough, maybe God would bless me. Maybe this is what God would have for me. And so we looked at Isaiah 1, 10 through 17. It was this, this picture where God is repeatedly saying, why are you doing these sacrifices blindly before me? And so it called us to evaluate our attendance. It called us to evaluate our giving. It called us at the base level to evaluate our heart. What is our motivation for doing these things? Are we just doing church and doing church well? Or are we true followers and worship, worshipers of Jesus Christ? And does he have our hearts? I mean, that was such a painful message for us to, to walk through, those questions for us to ask ourselves. And in that intimate moment with, with God in our innermost being, as he is communicating and laying upon us the ways that we are just going through the motions. Well, what a gracious reminder that our God loves us, that he is merciful to us, and that he calls us in this revivalist intent to revive our hearts, to give us new love, new energy, to call us once again, not to blindless repetition of some mindless attendance figure we're trying to hit, or just this bank draft that comes out of our account every month that we don't even think about, but he calls us to full bore worship. And he rejoices when we return to him in that. This morning, though, we're looking in Jeremiah 29 and in really beginning to focus on the question of what does this look like? If this is God's heart, if this is what my heart looks like, then, then Matt, when I put those two things together, what would God have us do here in Greenville, Texas? What would he have us do in the year 2015? We're going to come at it from a, from a really interesting perspective. And I think what we'll see here in Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, is that God has, in the prophetic word of Jeremiah, a word for us today. Let's walk through this together. 
Now, Jeremiah writes in, in an interesting time of history. He's writing roughly 100 years after the time of Isaiah. Isaiah is writing and the Assyrians are, are surrounding Jerusalem. Isaiah, or, I'm sorry, Jeremiah is writing and it's 100 years past. And so he's seen the Assyrians come in and sack. He's seen Egypt be oppressors. And ultimately he has seen the Babylonians take those in Judah into captivity. And in the midst of this, he got to see all these things take place. And so it's this real pivotal time in the history of Israel. And Jeremiah had a front row seat. Now, it's important for us to recognize Jeremiah is not a well-liked man. Now, for some of you, what you know of Jeremiah is that he's a bullfrog, such a good friend of mine. This is a different person. This is a different person. I heard David Jeremiah use that joke. It was much funnier because his name is actually, yeah, okay. And so he's writing, though, and, and people did not consider him to be such a good friend of mine. They considered him to be a nuisance. They considered him to be an irritant. Imagine it this way, or in fact, you don't have to imagine if you read the book of Jeremiah, you'll see this. There are those prophesying in the day of Jeremiah, and it would be as if you got two letters in the mail. You got one from Prophet A, and you got the other one from Jeremiah. Now, Prophet A would write you, and it would say something like this. We've got good news for you. You have been selected to receive one of the four major prizes. Right? And you begin to be... Wow, come on now, major prizes, what does that actually look like? Is that like a specialized pin, or is it really the condo in South Beach? And so, but you're, but you're reading it, and it's, it's, it's good news. You've got this vacation coming up. You've got this holiday paid for. And then you get this other letter that says, uh, effectively, you didn't make your bill payments. Your house is going to be foreclosed upon. We got the heads up. Your boss is going to fire you. And FYI, you should check the garage because someone has stolen your car. Right, And so you read these, and what do you want to be true? Which one of these do you want to be true? Like you're hoping and praying, please let it be a major prize. Please let it be a major prize. Please let it be this condo in South Beach. Please let it be this good news. And so we invest ourselves in what we hope will be the future. Because we don't want the bad news. We don't want this, this thing that we have in our gut. We think, oh, I don't think I did that. I, you know, I haven't checked the garage lately. You know, I haven't followed up on these things lately. Jeremiah's situation mirrors this perfectly. Jeremiah, as the true prophet of the Lord, repeatedly writes to the exiles, and he says, this is the reality of your new existence. But there are those around uh, the exiles that say, disregard this guy. He is a, he's a loser. He's a scam. Uh, we're going to be returned to the land quickly. God is going to bring his judgment upon Babylon quickly. And Jeremiah is writing them over and over again, saying, no, this is not true. You'll be in the land for 70 years. And in the midst of chapter 29, we find Jeremiah again returning to the exiles. And and let's walk through this together and see what he says to them. So he sends the letter in verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We can't skip this. This is something so decidedly important to the whole thing. You see, they don't live in Babylon as the end result of some colossal case of bad luck. They don't live in Babylon because of the Babylonians' military excellency. They don't live in Babylon because of this this horrible series of poor events that have taken place. They don't live in Babylon because they're just unfortunate. What does it say there? Focus in on this. Verse 4. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent. Recognize God sent them into exile. God sent them into exile. And you say, Matt, well, why should this be a comforting word? This seems to be pretty damning. This seems to be pretty upsetting. This seems to me that they would look at this and say, Oh God, I I hold a grudge against you because you did this to me. We recognize that it is God's kindness that brought discipline into their lives. We are largely a people that that recoil at the thought of discipline. Because in, in many instances, the thoughts of discipline go to extreme. And so they go to child abuse. They go to abandonment. They go to verbal abuse. They go to mental abuse. And so when we think about God, the eternal one, the omnipotent one, the king over all things, bringing any form of discipline to someone's life, we recoil. We don't like this aspect of God. But what we recognize in this is this was the most supremely kind and loving thing God could do. Repeatedly. For decades, for hundreds of years, he sent prophets to these people. He sent people with big, big, big clappers, with big megaphones, and they would step into the room and say, you need to turn back to God! And what would people do? If they couldn't kill them, they'd, they'd laugh at them. If they couldn't ridicule them, they, it would, they would imprison them. If they could not get people to disregard what they would say, they would raise up good prophets who would say a word that they'd want to hear. God graciously, repeatedly, over and over again, sought to communicate with the people of Israel and to call them back to his heart. That is always the heart of God, to call us back to himself. And so we see in this, what Jeremiah wants them to understand is, don't forget God in your exile. Don't forget God in your exile. God is still doing a work in you, even in your failure. What we see from David in, in 2 Samuel is David has, has done a census there in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. And God is going to bring woe on him. And David has these words which are incredibly instructive for us. God gives David a choice of all the things that could come his way. Do you want famine? Do you want to have an army come upon you? And David chooses God. In verse 14 of chapter 24 he says, Let us fall under the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Recognize even in God's dispense, dispensement of justice of discipline his mercy is great what a terrific thing you can say in the midst of your your mess ups in the midst of your your horrible life and all these things that we bring upon ourselves because of our sinfulness that god's mercy is great in that that his discipline is perfectly met to our recklessness that is perfectly measured for our disbelief this is perfect and what we see in hebrews 12 is When the author there is writing about discipline, he says, every father who loves his son brings discipline upon him, but the Lord perfectly so. God's discipline for the people of Israel was perfect. It was suited for their need. It was suited for their injustice. It was suited for their hardness of heart. Look what he goes on to say. Look at five and six. He begins to give some instructions to them. So they know that God has sent them into the land, that it's not happened as a result of someone overpowering them, but it's happened because this is what God ordained to happen to them. Look what he writes to them. Build houses and live in them. You've got to understand. These people were robbed from their homes. They were taken. Many of their family members were killed. Their crops were burned. Their livestock 
sacrificed, their temple destroyed. Everything about their former manner of life had been taken from them. They'd been been uprooted, relocated, forcibly moved to a foreign land surrounded by foreign people. And in the midst of this, what does God tell them to do? Build houses and live in them. He's calling them to abandon this renter's mentality where they say, we're just here for a little while. We're just transients. We're just passing through. Soon and very soon, God is going to come and change these things. And, and, and note that he's not even writing them and saying, you know what? What I want you to do is just have a good mindset about things. As you go through struggles, as you go through difficulties in life, you just need to look at it and say, you know what? I choose to believe that glass is half full. I choose to believe that glass is half full. I choose to believe things couldn't possibly get any worse. He's not writing them. This isn't God seeking to convince these people that there's something better for them if they would only think positive thoughts. He's calling them in the midst of their discipline to do something difficult. Imagine somebody coming in and taking everything you had. You wake up in the morning, you're out on the curb, and you've got just the stuff you can fit in a trash bag. And the only place for you to move is into the middle of the neighborhood of the people that violated this crime against you and your family. So you go into that neighborhood, and there's a lot right beside the house where all the people who violated your family live. And God goes to you and says, build a house there. Set up a house there. Make plans to live there. Put a window on the side so that you look out, you can see the people that came into your house, that killed your wife, that stole those things that your family had held dear for generations. Build a house there. How would you respond? Many of us, the response would be, God, you've got to be crazy. You just want me to make it easy for them this time, I suppose. Build a house. That way the criminals don't have to carry your stuff so far. Goodness. Come on now. Look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. He writes to them and he tells them, build a house and live in them. God sends this people right in the middle of enemy territory. And what he tells them is, don't make an encampment. Don't build temporary shelters. Don't, don't set up and look at it and say, this is all temporary. This is all temporary. This is ephemeral. This is passing. Set up and be prepared to do life there. Build a house and live in them. Now, he's writing to a people that are not given to moving around very much. Now, now, now for us, we have this idea, many of us, that we're, we're somewhat given to transient, somewhat of a transient nature. I mean, by the time I was three, I was making an international trip with my family. And I added this up the other day, that in 11 years, I lived in 11 different homes, apartments, and hotels. We lived in a hotel for three months. And so in 11 years, 11 moves. In second grade, three schools, four homes. And so this idea is like, meh, okay, I can move. But he's writing to a people who are so used to being static, who are so used to still being in the same area. And he writes to them and he says, the, the static nature, this normal life that you had in Judah, make it here. This normal life you had in Judah, make it here. Effectively, as Kent Hughes writes, he tells them this, I want you to set up the city of God amongst the metropolis of Satan. 
I want you to set up the city of God amongst the metropolis of Satan. This suburb of God, he has them set up in the midst of this city. Build houses, live in them. Look what he says next. Plant gardens and eat their produce. He's calling on them to thoroughly invest themselves. If they had the idea and the mentality that they were only there for a season, God seeks to dispel that. It wasn't that they were to go out and they have this field that is perfectly laid and God says, hey, look, somebody else tilled this soil. Somebody else put all the rocks out of this soil. You go out there, buddy, and you just live off the fat of the land. That's not what he called them to. He called them to do that in the midst of going into the promised land. But this land, this land of exile, he calls them to go out and to work the soil. They've got to go out in the middle of enemy territory and make this ground good to bear fruit. Can you imagine? Can you imagine in this neighborhood where you've set up your house, you're surrounded by people who had done your family wrong, surrounded by people who had taken all of your only possessions, and they're like, what are you doing outside? You're like, man, I'm tilling the soil. I guess you're going to steal this stuff too. I'm tilling the soil. What are you doing that for? Well, I'm just going to feed my family, and apparently I'm going to feed all your people that come over and take my stuff anyway. This is what he's calling them to. This is incredibly difficult. And recognize in the midst of them going out and going about this process, what are they doing? They're admitting defeat. For a prideful people, admitting defeat is incredibly painful. It's incredibly difficult. But they have to admit defeat in the midst of this. Because as they're going about and setting up life, they recognize the life they once knew is gone. That's the difficult thing about setting up a new home. That's the difficult thing about setting up new routines after you suffer loss, after you've gone through difficult things. Because it's a communication that your former things are gone. You lose a child, you lose a job, you lose your home in a fire. When you begin to set up new ways of life, it's painful because it's you saying goodbye to what was before. So he calls them to set up life. And if that's not offensive enough, look what he says to them in this next verse. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. He calls them in the midst of this, still gleaning and leaning on Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4, which calls them not to enter marriage, not to, you know, hey, just bring along your Babylonian neighbors. Make friends by marrying their families. You want to be friends with your enemy? Make friends with your new mother-in-law. Like, he's not calling them to that. He's not saying, this is revolutionary. If you can win a mother-in-law, you can win a community. That's right. Some of you are like, I've tried. You can't do it. But I imagine that's probably true. He's not calling them that. He's still calling them to maintain ethnic purity. He's still calling on them not to give themselves to the worship of false gods around them. And that's what Deuteronomy 7 is about. God calls them not to intermarry because he said their false gods will lead you away. You'll begin to worship them instead of worshiping the true God. But in the midst of this, what does he call them to? Marriage. What happens when you get married? Likely, hopefully, you have children. He's calling them to increase. If they thought it was difficult to build homes, if they thought it was difficult to get crops out of the ground, he's calling them to generationally live there. Look at the language he uses. Take wives and have sons. Take wives for your sons, and so you have children, your children have children, that they may be sons and daughters, multiply there. He's calling them to invest themselves in Babylon with no end in sight at this point. 
He's calling them to set up this city of God in the midst of the metropolis of Satan with no end in sight. He's calling them to fully invest, give themselves to investing, to becoming beacons of the community, to becoming thoroughly enmeshed in the community where people would know them. You know, this is one of the strangest things for me when I moved to Greenville. I started going to stores, and people knew me. I didn't know them, and I thought that was impressive. And then I went out with Ken Money. It's terrifying. Everyone knows him, and he knows people that don't know him. I mean, it's scary. It's like there is a, a, a pictorial directory for the whole community. He just sat there and studied it. Know him, know her, know her. Had her removed. She's anathema. I don't think he ever did that. We should work on that, though. To be known in the community, that's what he's calling them for, that they're future generations, that this would be the place where they set down roots. This would be the place where they're so well known by the people that people begin to know them, not just by who their family is, but by who their God is. So he's calling on them to thoroughly invest themselves in a life there. But still, God hasn't reached the heights of the difficulty he's going to ask them to walk in. Read verse 7 with me. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf or in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Your house gets robbed. You have to build new construction next to the people that robbed you. You have to till the ground outside their front yard. You have to set up and recognize that your children will never know your homeland. That they'll only grow up experiencing Judah through your stories, through your memorabilia, and they will have to see it through your eyes, in their minds, and in their minds only. It's devastating. But still in your heart, still in your heart at this point, you think, I hate these people around. They don't think like I do. They don't believe like I do. They don't care about the things I care about. Hate these people around me. So he comes into verse 7. He says, You are surrounded by your enemies. But this is my command to you seek their welfare. Some of you have the NIV, and it's splitting that term welfare into peace and prosperity. And what they're trying to communicate there is this Hebrew idiom, this idea of the word shalom. He's trying to encapsulate, and it's this, this totally overpowering word and idea that it is so much more than financial peace. It is so much more than health. It's so much more than vitality. It is the peace of God. What they are supposed to be doing is bringing, as Gideon would say in Judges 24 or Judges 6:24, they're supposed to be bringing this God who is peace to bear on their community. In seeking the welfare of their city, in seeking the welfare of their city, they're seeking to expose their city to God. You see the amazing picture there? God did not send these people to be monks living in a monastic community, isolated around those who surrounding them. God sent them to live as missionaries on foreign soil with antagonistic neighbors. This is what God did. 
This was his particular type of discipline to bring in their lives. That he would bring them there, that he would purify them there, and that there he would have them set up this city of God, this beacon of light, surrounded by darkness. For what end? That they might seek the welfare of all those around them. That they might help them to find their welfare, not in financial security, not in good schools, but in the Lord. It's amazing. So he calls them to this. He calls them to to give themselves diligently to the investment of the people around them. Look what he calls them to next. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. He inextricably links their welfare, the welfare of Judah, with the welfare of Babylon. Imagine if you found this new neighborhood that you're moving into. And then you were told that your welfare, that your goodness was tied to that of your neighbor. Your level of investment in their lives is radically different. Your level of investment in their lives is so incredibly different. This is what he tells them. Pray on behalf of your lost neighbor to the God of all creation so that he might do what? He might open their eyes and they might recognize that true welfare only lies in God. It doesn't lie in an academic advancement. It doesn't lie in professional advancement. It doesn't lie in having multiple children. It doesn't lie in having a vacation home. It doesn't lie in having a fully vested retirement portfolio. It doesn't lie in any of these things. It lies, it rests, it remains, it is found, and it is extended through God and God alone. So we come to this passage, you say, well, this is great. I, I love this. This is wonderful. Matt, I can't wait to go out and seek for the welfare of our city. But, but we, we look at this and we wonder, how does this communicate to us here? I mean, is it, is it in having a, a better economy in our area? Is it having better schools? Is it having a, a city government and a civic authority that functions and functions well? Certainly those are good things, but that's not what he's talking about. We begin to get an idea when we look at a couple of different figures historically. We're going to look at them and then I'm going to bring it to bear here on, on us. Historically, you look at some of the major movements of humanitarian relief work, humanitarian investment, historically, and you'll find Christians intimately involved. William Wilberforce, if you've not read anything about him, there's an incredibly long book by Eric Metaxas where you can read a chapter out of his much shorter book called Seven Men. But William Wilberforce lived late 18th century, early 19th century. Normal guy. I mean, sure, he had everything going for him. He came from a great family, well-educated, up-and-coming in politics. But the most significant aspect of Wilberforce's life is when he gave himself fully, 100%, to what he referred to as radicalized Christianity. When he became a Christian and recognized that in being a Christian, it called you to live out that faith, everything changed for Wilberforce. And he, he thought, he felt that God had laid before him two goals. The abolition of slavery in Great Britain, and what he referred to as the refor- reformation of manners. Now he's not talking about elbows on tables or chewing with your mouth open. Both of those things are disgusting. One more so than the other. But when he looked at his society, he recognized these these manners, these social ills that were impacting those around him were a number of things. There was a high illiteracy rate. Drunkenness was out of control. 
fully one-fourth of the population in London in his day, of, of the, the female population, were prostitutes. So a quarter of the women living in London at the day, uh, in the days of Wilberforce were prostitutes. In child labor, five- and six-year-olds routinely worked for 10 to 12 hours a day. Like, and I can't get my son to clean his room. But, <clears throat> but they routinely worked for 10 to 12 hours a day. This is unbelievable. And so he set his mind on the singularity of seeking the welfare of his country. And he gave himself politically. He was a politician, and so he invested himself over and over and over again. Defeat after defeat after defeat. Ridicule and mockery. He risked economic suicide. He risked political suicide. He lost friends. He lost family. He gave everything to the advancement of the cause that God had laid on his heart. Three days before he died in the year 1833, slavery was outlawed in the entire British Empire. We look at that and we say, amen. God, you are able to move mountains. God, you are able to bring your welfare to bear on humanity, even when it's economically opposed to it. Think about in this country, in the 1960s, the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement, much to the embarrassment of many white churches, was something that white Christians radically opposed. We did not want to upset the status quo. We didn't want to upset what had worked for our parents, for our grandparents. We did not want, in some circles, to upset what the church purported to be the word of God. They illegitimized the word of God and they used it to selfish ends. Martin Luther King and others stood up and they recognized the Imago Dei, the image of God. That in Genesis it said, I made humanity, I made them in the image and the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He doesn't stipulate ethnicity, he doesn't stipulate race, he doesn't stipulate age. That all life is cherished, that all life is valuable. And they did this from deep-seated religious conviction. King, a horribly flawed man, an alcoholic, a womanizer. But at his heart, he believed the promises of God. Writing from a prison cell in Birmingham, he was writing to other clergy, seeking to fire them up, seeking to encourage them. And there were those saying, shouldn't we be more extreme? Shouldn't we move away from passive resistance? Shouldn't we move away from civil disobedience? And King wrote to them and he says, was not Jesus an extremist in love? Love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Was not Amos an extremist in justice? Let justice roll down like waters of righteousness, like a mighty stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I can do none other. So help me God. Was not John Bunyan an extremist? I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. He saw the good of humanity. And he found it in the text. He sought for the welfare of the impoverished. He sought for the welfare of the marginalized. He sought for the good of his city. And he recognized it stemming from, coming from, the shalom, the peace of God. Think about our day. 
He's highlighted two ministries that are thoroughly involved and meshed with reaching out to the marginalized, to the financially um, precarious. But when you think about this, there's been a radical shift. There's been a paradigm change in our day. You see, in Wilberforce's day and in Martin Luther King's day, the church was at the head of these, and people looked at it and said, these are the things largely the church should be doing. They're looking out for, for those around us. They are investing themselves, seeking for the good of the city, and they're doing meritorious good things. But our culture has changed. Our culture has, has radically changed so that when we see ourselves looking out for, for those who appear marginalized among us, and we think we're going to give ourselves to those who have no voice for themselves, we're going to give ourselves to the unborn. We're going to advocate for their freedoms. We're going to advocate for the reality that they are made in the image and the likeness of God. We're going to advocate that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're going to advocate against abortion. We're going to move to set up adoption centers. We're going to move to support single mothers. We're going to do all of these things. How are we seen? Small-minded. Judgmental. If you're a man, you're seen as speaking into a situation that does not concern you. It is not your body. You have no right to communicate. In a short window of time, our right to virtue has been stripped from us. When you engage in speech on behalf of the most defenseless member of our society, the unborn, or the elderly, when you militate against euthanasia, this belief that at a certain point people are no longer valuable, if you argue against either one of those, you are judgmental and hateful. Seeking the good of the city becomes really difficult in that. Seeking the good of the city, this thing that was so crystal clear. I've often said I should have been a pastor in the 1950s. You advocate for racial equality and women's rights and you are an all-star. Because it it seems simple to look back upon. But you advocate for the unborn and you are a small-minded bigot that has no sense of what is up or down. You advocate for the family. You advocate this biblical understanding that marriage is something that God has created between a man and a woman, and you are pushing the envelope. You're not loving, you're judgmental. We set up a membership agreement at Ridgecrest. And that membership agreement was written by the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, the Alliance Defending Freedom, these groups that said for churches, for nonprofits to protect themselves, they need to put a vehicle in place. And so we did that. We, we went about asking people, hey, would you sign this? Would you sign? Saying that you believe these things to be true. Read the thing. I assumed it to be the most innocuous document I've ever seen. In fact, I had th- this idea that uh, it, it, it pretty much just says what Scripture says. We shouldn't do these things. We, we, we believe certain things to be true. We believe other things to be false. It's dogmatic in saying that what the Bible says is true. And so if that's dogmatism, I'm guilty. But as we're we're going through this, if we're going to receive opposition to this thing, it should be from without. It should not be from within. It should not be from within. But it's this this idea when when we look at it, it says this makes us exclusivistic. 
this makes us judgmental. Friend, this does not make us judgmental. This makes us incredibly loving. Do you not get that? Do you not see that? The most loving thing God could do was call them to repentance. The most loving thing we can do is tell people, this is absolutely what we believe. Like we love you in spite of your sin, just as God loved us in spite of our sin. But this is what we believe. If he imprisons us, if we suffer for him, we're only living out the end of what Jesus said in John 15, 20. He said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. No servant is above his master. This is what it is to be a Christian. We're not setting down this deal saying that you have to be these things to join in among us. None of us are perfect. None of us. It's difficult. Seeking the good of the city, seeking the welfare of the city in the 21st century is absolutely difficult. Why? Because the world outside is so incredibly antagonistic towards us. I have friends, I have distant relatives that are in this LGBT lifestyle. And this community thrives on the dismantlement of the church. They rejoice at the infighting that these conversations have sparked in churches. For too long, as Christians, we have been content to be quietly going about our business. Quietly going about our business while the world around us burns to the ground. And we see those that have wanted to do things, that have have sounded this clarion call for for involvement, investiture, investing themselves, investing their finances, giving of all that they have to being in and among this fight, seeking for the good of the city. Called them radicals. Called them fanatics. We wanted nothing to do with them. Wilberforce. Was called a fanatic. He was called a liberal because he sought value in others and he sought to lead people to follow God's word because he recognized not that it would create a better society, but that it would lead men and women to value those things God values, to lay their hearts before God in seeking the good of the city. We're not just seeking to have better schools in Greenville, Texas. We're not seeking just to bring in new businesses to Greenville, Texas. We're not seeking to elect a Republican in 2016. If this is what you set your hope on, you're always going to be disappointed. If this is what you set your, 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 your plans on, oh God, if we could just elect a Republican, he could undo some of these horrid things we've seen. If this is what you set your hope on, that is not a Christian Hope, a Christian hope, places you in the middle of cultural exile. If they were in physical exile, we live as cultural exiles. It places you there. It asks you to set up the city of God in the midst of the city of Satan. What it is to seek for the welfare of those around you is following the same idea that worked in the day of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was writing to these exiles exiles, and he said, seek for the welfare of the city. Seek to extend the shalom of God to all those around you. Now Gideon, speaking of God, says God himself is shalom. And what we see in Romans, what we see in Romans, flip over to Romans 5.1. 
Let's meditate on this. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, shalom, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The thing that brings peace to our community. The thing that we seek after. The thing that we live our lives pouring out in the extension of is Jesus in our community. Jesus in our neighborhoods, Jesus in our schools, Jesus in our law firms, Jesus in the dentist's office, Jesus in our families, Jesus everywhere we go. The only hope we have of bringing any sort of lasting change to our community does not rest in the political system. It rises and falls on the people of God's allegiance to Jesus, submission to Jesus. You ask me, Matt, what is your hope for this country? My hope rests and falls on Jesus. It's the same for my life. It's the same for the life of my family, for my children. The only hope we've got is trusting fully on Jesus. The only hope we have of bringing lasting change to our community, be it in Austin, Texas, Greenville, Texas, or Istanbul, Turkey, is Jesus. Friends, this is what I want us to do. I want us to enter into a time of prayer, but I want to make it a little bit different today. I want us to all, everyone that is able, come to the front. And what we're going to do is pray that the peace of God, as a corporate body, we're going to gather and pray that the peace of God will be known in our lives and to all those we come into contact with. So as the band's making its way back up, I'm going to ask that we already begin to come on down. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer that God would move in our midst, that he would call us to seek for the good of our, well, the welfare of our city, that he would seek to bring his shalom to bear in our lives and the lives of those around us.